All right, you can open up in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you will. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the early church in Corinth, and we're going to continue to work our way through the introduction of this letter this morning, focusing on how thankful Paul is for the Corinthians and for his ability to minister to them and for the good work that God is doing in them. Uh, But first, I I wanted to begin this morning with some words of thanks to God uh, for one of our own. I sincerely thank you if you've been praying for the Provencia family. Uh, Over the last few months, Mike has been battling cancer, and it has not been easy for him. Uh, It has been a difficult charge. And on Tuesday afternoon, uh, it appeared that Mike had a heart attack. At the time, that was the best guess as to what was going on. Um, Thank the Lord, his son Jim was with them. And Jim administered CPR to him until the ambulance got there. They were able to revive his heart. Um, but he never regained consciousness again. God was merciful in many ways throughout the process. Um, We ended up having him go to Sutter. He uh, was, they thought he was having a heart condition and Sutter has a good cardiac unit, so they made the decision to go to Sutter even though he's a Kaiser patient, which is fortunate because at Kaiser right now, their policies are very strict and they probably wouldn't have been able to be anybody with him in his last moments. Um, It At Sutter, they allowed the family to be near to him in the ER and to spend time by his side. They delayed his transfer to the ICU long enough that uh, his daughter Denise could fly in and and be there with him and spend some time with him. Uh, When he was in the ICU, they did allow uh, Nelda to be in with him and and to be able to spend some time in prayer over him. On Thursday morning, uh, Mike finished his race. He left this earth and all the troubles that are within it, and he joined his Savior Um, for an eternity of worship and joy. And I want to thank God for Mike's love for the church today. His example of marriage faithfulness has always been a blessing to me as I've seen him and his wife love the Lord together and serve side by side and be supportive of one another. I want to thank the Lord God for the example of godly manhood uh, that he shared through Mike to other people. I know Steve shared with me how Mike was like an uncle to him growing up. Not everybody has the benefits of being raised around a godly family. And so some of you men who don't know it are uncles to to young men and to young women who need examples of godly faithfulness. And Mike provided that for many others. I'm grateful for his extreme willingness to serve and to care for those whom he served. Oftentimes when there was someone in Mike and Nelda's small group who ended up in the hospital, Mike would beat me there. I'd show up to pray or to be there for support and counsel, and Mike would already be waiting for him. We spent many hours in waiting rooms and hospitals together just thinking about God's people and the way that the Lord provides for his church. I've seen through many of the trials and tribulations that Mike and Nelda had to go through over times, the way that they clung to the Lord when Nelda had pancreatitis and was very sick for a while, their faith for God and knowing that he would overcome that and that he would provide for them even, you know, no matter what happened with her sickness was a blessing to me. In 2008, when the economy went down and and labor took a real hit, it was difficult for Mike to get enough work. But he always trusted the Lord through that and was was never too worried about the, the finances. Uh, He led his small group with consistency and with an open heart. And I'm grateful for uh, his friendship and the way that we were able to serve together. We do not have solid dates yet for memorial service. As soon as we know those things, we will let you know. Uh, With that kind of gratitude in our hearts for a man through whom we saw the love and the power of God displayed, we get to now read the Word of God where Paul the Apostle talks about his gratefulness 
for those whom God put into his care. And so we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to read verses, uh, chapter 1 rather, and we're going to read verses 4 through 9. The Apostle Paul writes, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Would you bow with me as we spend a moment in prayer and thank God for what he has prepared for us in his word this morning. Holy God, we love you and we thank you that you are intending to edify our hearts today to take whatever weakness is there and to dispel it and to replace it with a confidence in you that is so much greater than any confidence we could ever pretend to have in ourselves. Lord God, you are holy. You are righteous and pure. You are good. And you make your church these things by your grace. And so, Lord, help us to be humble before you today. And I pray that the words of power that are preserved for us in this book would be such a great blessing to us that they would strengthen us as bread strengthens the weary traveler. Lord God, help us to walk away from this place today re-strengthened and rejuvenated and ready to work for you and to praise you and to seek you, God, with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We ask, Lord, that you would dispel confusion, help us to rightly divide the word and to understand it well together. May we be unified in doctrine and understanding, Lord God, so that you might be the principal object of our love and affection. We pray this all in your perfect name, Jesus. Amen. Paul continues greeting uh, to the Corinthians by expressing his gratitude for the things that God is accomplishing in them and through them here in these verses. This expression of gratitude is common for Paul in the letters that he sends out and uh, that are recorded in the New Testament. Take, for example, the introduction to the first Thessalonians level, uh, letter, rather, chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. Paul writes to that church, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And in similar uh, ways, in every letter to the church, Paul gives thanks to God for the work that he is doing in his people. And that is with the exception of the letter to the Galatians. Uh, Paul was quite upset with the Galatians, and he wasn't sure if, if some of them were truly believers, and so he omits uh, a section of thanksgiving in that letter. And then to two of the pastoral letters, where he is writing to people familiar enough with him that they already are well aware of his thankful heart for their service to the Lord. So what do these thankful openings accomplish when we look at the scripture and we see what, uh, what, what is written there? In Greek literature, this kind of greeting was actually considered a rhetorical technique. It was very common. If you read stuff outside of the Bible from this time, there is often in letters from person to person a section of thankfulness that precedes the body of the letter. And this rhetorical device especially was included if a letter was meant to correct someone or to plead with them to change their mind about something. 
And so often that section of thanksgiving was meant to kind of butter up the reader. It was meant to put them in a good attitude so they might be more receptive to the things that were spoken. But let's not make the mistake of pressing Greek ideals onto Paul, who was not defined by the culture of the day, but was defined by the command and instruction of his Savior. We should not think of Paul's words of giving thanks as some kind of flattery here uh, to puff up the Corinthians and to win their favor. Look again at verse 4. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So who is Paul actually thanking? He's thanking God. Far be it from Paul to thank God in some sort of empty or insincere way. Paul's thanks are directed to his Savior. Paul would only ever thank God with a sincere heart. He truly is grateful for them. Even though at times he writes, um, even though at times when he writes to them, we see that their progress is being hindered by their maturity and, and by their lack of understanding. There's a principle that we can draw from this, that even when a brother or sister in Christ is struggling with sin, we can and should love them and thank God for our spiritual family ties to them. Even when they're, they're not walking the way they should, even when they're not listening to godly counsel, even when they're doing things that upset us, we should still love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Friends, Christian love is not easy. But insofar as we have been given a graceful love by God, a love that's not based on our performance, a love that is not based on our, our ability to keep the law or our worthiness to be loved, but based instead on the gracious character of God and his powerful willingness to love us, then we too can learn to care for one another despite our faults, and despite the fact that we let each other down from time to time. So even in the introduction to this letter, Paul is determined not to waste an opportunity to edify his friends at the Corinthian church. Not a single word of his letter is empty or unimportant. He will not let his thanksgiving be an empty flattery to his friends, nor will he allow it to be a thoughtless formality that just kind of gets you to the body of the letter. Paul has work to do with his Christian friends in this communication. And here in the introduction to the letter, he's already begun that work, and I want to show you how today. Paul will use this greeting to express his sincere gratitude to the Corinthians, but he will do so in such a way that they can begin to understand that every good thing that is praiseworthy in them comes from Christ himself. That is the origin of what makes them praiseworthy. So in verse 4, Paul says, I give thanks for you. Why? Because of the gift of grace that God put into you. So this is not praise directly about the Corinthians themselves or their works. As the letter progresses, it will become increasingly clear that the Corinthians were actually a pain in the neck to Paul in many ways. They were doing things that were not honoring to the Lord God. Their behavior in many ways more closely matched the lost Gentiles of the city that they lived in than it matched the believers with whom they should have been associating. They struggled with sin. They had a hard time letting go of idolatry. The temptations of the flesh were constantly luring them away from Christ. There was a proud arrogance that lingered in these people, and yet a redeeming work is being done among them. And Paul is thankful for that. He is thankful not only for what they are, and right now they're not currently what they need to be, but he is also thankful in anticipation of the good work that 
He's confident Jesus will complete in them. I, uh, we have a brother who used to go to church here. He now lives in Oregon. And, and when he was baptized here at our, our church, he was beautifully open about his testimony. Randy had struggled with alcoholism for quite some time. And the church had ministered alongside him through that process. And, and it had a really firm grip on his heart and on his life. He was a slave to that sin for, for a long time. And when he was baptized, he openly shared this testimony, which included praise to Jesus for the victory that he had over alcoholism. He just celebrated his three years of sobriety on June 1st, praise God. And we remained thankful for him. But we weren't just thankful because he accomplished sobriety. We were still thankful for Randy, even when he was falling again and again in this cycle of weakness. We still loved him. We still dwelt with him. We still cared for him. And he knew that he was loved regardless of whether or not he was able to overcome his temptations. And that is, that is I think, in some ways a, a beautiful picture of the way the church is to endure with one another in love, not because everyone's behaving the way you want them to, but because your brothers and sisters in Christ have been saved by his blood and are precious and valuable. And we know that because he suffered for them. So our brothers in Christ, our sisters in Christ should be precious to us as well, even when they cause us grief, even when it is very difficult to continue with them in love. Paul points out that God had provided the Corinthians with his grace in two very specific ways. Verse 4 makes note of the grace of God that was given to the Corinthians in Christ Jesus. This is specifically talking about saving grace. It is a confession on the part of Paul that he believes the Corinthians to be true Christians. Saving grace is the reality that every individual who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ comes undeserving of heaven. Scripture tells us plainly that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you might look around the world and say, well, there are good people and there are bad people. But in reality, every one of us rebels against the commands of a gracious God that was so generous that he gave us life and allowed us to live in the world that he created. And so every one of us was an enemy to God, not just ignorant and not just living apart from God, but enemies to God until the gospel of the scriptures was revealed to us in such a way that we could see the severity of our sin, that we could see the danger of our rebellion to God, and that we could also see our own weakness, that there was nothing in us that could turn the ship around, that there was no good thing in us that could overcome the, the wrath of God that we had earned by our sin. And so he is pointing out here to the specific saving grace of God, that God, through a free gift given through Jesus Christ on the cross, was willing to wash the sins of these sinners away and to make them pure and holy before the Lord God so that they would be able to come into right fellowship with him. Verse 4 refers to that saving grace that God provided. Verses 5 through 7 begin to speak of a different, more specific manifestation of the grace of God. Because the Corinthians belong to God now through grace, God had also supplied them with certain spiritual gifts that they needed to, to be a strong and productive church in the image of God. Look at verse 5 again. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge, 
speaking specifically of gifting that had been poured out upon them, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Now, the word gift here in the Greek is charizmate. And charizmate is from the same root word as the word grace itself. Grace is rooted in the word charite, and gift is charizmate. So we see a real close connection between those two words. The gifts that Paul is talking about here, these charisma gifts, are the spiritual gifts that were given by the indwelling of the Spirit of God, which comes upon someone who believes. God doesn't just save you to wipe your record clean and then to send you out into the universe to do whatever you want. That's not why he saves you. He saves you because you are far from him. And you were designed and made to be near to him. And so he wipes your sin away, not so that you can become then a free agent who goes and does whatever he wants with his life, but so that you can be near to him and that you can enjoy this close fellowship and connection with God that you had ruined by your sin. And so God brings you near and gives you a gift of the Holy Spirit, his presence dwelling within you. And that Holy Spirit provides many, many advantages for you. As you walk through the world now, you can open the word of God and read it and understand it. Whereas before, in rebellion to God, the word doesn't really make sense to an individual. You now feel grieved about your sin. It's not something you can be comfortable with. When you commit sin, when you break God's law, the Holy Spirit reminds you that that's not who you are anymore. This Holy Spirit also provides for us this wonderful gift of spiritual gifts, which are abilities that we did not necessarily have before, that were not strong in us before, that God now uses in us to bless his church. These spiritual gifts were given for a number of reasons. They were given as evidence of the Spirit's work in a person, and this is especially true in the first century church. At this point, they did not have the full canon of Scripture, and God, if you read through the book of Acts, many ways, did miraculous signs and wonders among the people to show that indeed God was working through the apostles in accord with the things that Jesus had spoken. So some of it was evidence of the Spirit's work in the people. We don't need that as much anymore today because we have the clear word preserved for us. We have all that we need for righteousness and truth. Secondly, these gifts are useful for the kingdom. They are a blessing to God's church. And they make human beings capable of doing what they were not capable of doing before. You're seeing one of those right now as Nick Neves was not a preacher from birth. He was made so by the Holy Spirit. The only reason I can get up here without trembling before you is because the Lord has changed me by his presence in me and made it possible for me to do something that I'm not naturally good at. Thirdly, a person who has the Holy Spirit and its spiritual gifts experiences the blessing of seeing God work in and through them. And this improves our nearness to the Lord God. There is a wonderful joy in being utilized as a vessel of God's mercy to other people. Chapter 14 is going to go into this in more detail, so we won't talk about it too much this morning. But you can see here the very great benefits of spiritual gifting that God has brought upon his people. In verse 5, Paul lists two gifts in particular. He says that the spiritual gift of speech and the spiritual gift of knowledge are two gifts that he clearly sees in the people at Corinth. Now, later in the letter, Paul's going to circle back and address the ways that the Corinthians are actually misunderstanding and misusing those two specific gifts. But for now, he's doing fundamental work. He is setting the stage for later counsel for them regarding that matter. Whatever gifts or skills the Corinthians possess, they were given to them, first of all, by God. 
They're not something that just naturally comes up in them. God gave those gifts to them, and they're given, secondly, for the common good. They're not just for that one individual. They're not just a means for that person to now provide for their family and get a job. No, they are for the common good of God's church. And so 1 Corinthians 12, 7, we're going to be there in months and months. It says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That means whatever spiritual gift God has blessed you with, ask yourself, am I using it for me or am I using it for the church of God? He has put this deposit into my life so that I can be a good steward of it. How am I using that gift to bless those who are around me in the church? I believe this is one of the stronger arguments for the necessity for gathering together as God's people. Many people say, well, I can worship God fine by myself. I just watch sermons online. I sing songs. I don't need to gather with the church. But friends, you cannot serve the church with your spiritual gifts if you are not connected to the church in a, in a real way. So we need to be the church gathered. We need to come together to glorify him and to exercise these blessings that God has given to us by the Spirit. They are for the common good, not just our own. Now, there's a little bit of irony here in this section on Thanksgiving because the gifts that these believers have been given were now effectively causing divisions among them. God thanks God, or Paul thanks God for these gifts, but these gifts, because they're being misused and misunderstood by the Corinthians, are actually leading to division among them. And we're going to get to that as we work through this first chapter and we begin to see that some who are particularly gifted in speech, some who are particularly gifted in knowledge, people were flocking to them and were calling themselves apostles or disciples of those individual teachers instead of recognizing that the whole church is under the leadership and guidance of the one head, Jesus Christ. By thanking God for their spiritual gifts, Paul is clearly here clarifying that the gifts themselves are not the problem. The problem is broader than the gifts. The real problems are pride within the hearts of the Corinthians and a lackadaisical approach to holiness, which has caused them to behave like unbelievers. Later in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, Paul writes, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So part of the aim of this letter is for Paul to open the eyes to these Corinthians, to help them to realize that they have nothing in and of themselves that they should be boasting of, that they have no reason to boast about one another, that their boast should be in Christ Jesus. Paul is thankful for them, but he also wants to be clear here that he is thankful for how God provided through them and for them. Think about that, church. Has God provided for you? What has God done to make it possible for you to survive? Not only to survive, but to have peace and joy and love and fellowship with the Lord God. We always say, you know, God will provide. But do we really think about that concept? Have we sat and meditated on the fact that every single iota of what you need in life can be traced back to the generous hands of a loving God who cares about you, a God that is so generous that even those who are in rebellion to him right now, he provides air for them to breathe. 
He gives them health and well-being. He allows them to dwell in his creation, even though they are shaking the fist at him. This is a God who provides for us. How much more so does he give all to those who are his own children? He provides everything that we need. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? Everything that you need comes from the one who gives. So meditate on this reality. I think of the, the example of the two people praying in the temple that Jesus shared when he saw the Pharisee who prayed out loud, boastfully, thankful that he wasn't like the Gentiles or the lowly tax collectors. He was proud in what he had been able to accomplish. He came into the temple with a wrong and broken heart because he came to proclaim his own excellencies. And yet there, afar off from him, was a, a humble tax collector who was bowed before the Lord and could barely even approach the throne and was beating his chest and asking and pleading with God to have mercy on him, a humble sinner, because he knew he did not deserve the things that God was providing in his life. Do we have the same kind of humility before our God? He will better receive the tax collector, the humble tax collector, than the proud Pharisee. Friends, we need to begin to reject in ourselves a heart that is in any way entitled to God, that thinks that God owes us something, that the provision that he gives is anything other than a generous blessing that is undeserved. I want you to notice the completeness of God's provision here. God's provision for his people is so faithful that in these few verses, we see it encompasses our past, our present, and our future needs. Let's read through it again. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given. That's past tense. They were given grace that made them one with Christ, that washed their sin away and gave them faith. That in every way you were, that's past tense again, enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. So they were saved and then they were blessed and equipped to be his church. Verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed, past tense again, among you. So they have shown that God is really working in their lives. There is evidence in their history that they belong to Christ. Verse 7, so that you are not present, lacking any gifts. Right now they have all that they need. The gifts that God wants to give to them are theirs. They simply need to learn how to use them properly and receive them with the right attitude. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will future tense, sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God always provides. Every minute and moment of your life, if you are his, he is providing for you. And it is by his very nature that he does this. He is the creator God. He cannot help but provide for you, whether that is provision and, and supplication or whether it is justice. God is always providing for what he has made. I want us also to notice this morning the overwhelming effort that Paul makes to draw attention even as he praises the Corinthians to draw their attention back to the God who is the real reason they are praiseworthy to begin with. Look at that passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but look at the, the phrases that pop out again and again. To my God, because of the grace of God, in Christ Jesus, in Him, revealing our Lord Jesus Christ, he will sustain you in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. The fellowship of his son through Christ our Lord. His attention is constantly drawing them back 
to Jesus. So that though he is thankful and he's not ashamed to express that to them, he makes it very clear that the root of his thankfulness is not the Corinthians themselves, but it is their God whom they love and trust. By the time Paul gets to the end of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 31, he says, So as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And then he could have easily pointed back to verses 4 through 9 to say, that's how you do it. That's how you boast in the Lord. You find somebody through whom God is working. You say, look at what God has done in your life. See the evidence of his power of work among you. Paul boasts in Jesus' ability to discern the necessary gifts, to provide the necessary gifts for his people, and to sustain the Corinthians faithfully in all that they needed. His provision is complete. Now, verse 5 points out that these Corinthians have been enriched by the blessings of these spiritual gifts. And in other places in the New Testament, Paul has written of God's riches in grace. Here, though, Paul mentions that the Corinthians are themselves enriched by the grace of God. It draws my mind back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Listen to what Paul says to his friend Timothy. As for the rich, meaning the wealthy, in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. See how Paul uses a word play there. He says, they are rich in monetary means, but let them instead focus on the richness with which God has provided for their spiritual needs. Verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich, how? In good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. There are people in this world who are monetarily rich and yet are poverty-stricken when it comes to grace. Let that not be the people of God. One of the great blessings of following Christ is learning to value the things that are truly valuable. In life, we are often told by the people who are living around us that the things that matter the most are financial security, our property, our wealth and luxury, our comforts, are the freedoms to go and do the things we want to do and buy the things we want to buy. And yet when we read the scripture, we find that all of that advice is laid to waste in Jesus, that none of those material blessings really matter all that much. We saw in the book of Ecclesiastes that God often provides for us wealth and good things and that we should not be ashamed of that. But our true riches are not here on earth. They are stored up in heavenly storehouses, riches that cannot be corrupted or taken away from us. And we can be very thankful in a way that those who don't trust Christ cannot be thankful because we have learned to value better things in better ways. And those things are being provided for us every day by our God, who is our supplier. In verses 7 and 8 of our text this morning, Paul specifically makes mention of how God's faithful provision will carry the church on into the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, where they will be found guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that say about Paul's confidence that all of the issues he's about to tackle in this letter, and there are many, 
What does it say about his confidence that these Corinthians will overcome these things? It, it says that he is supremely confident, not in the Corinthians' ability necessarily, but in God's ability to hold fast to him those who belong to him, those who are his. Assurance is one of the greatest things that he faithfully provides for Christians in salvation. Because we understand that our place with him is in no way a function of our personal holiness. It is not because of what we were able to do or not do, but it was simply because of the gracious act of God by which he interrupted our sinful lives and opened our eyes to the truth and drew us near to him. Since that gift comes from his hand and not from ourselves, we can be confident that there's nothing we can do to corrupt it. God chooses to make us clean. And he will continue to provide that cleanliness for us as we walk along in this world. You know, human beings, if you think about it, are maybe junkies. We're junkies for the maybe. We love possibilities. We love the excitement of risk. We love not knowing how things are going to turn out. We especially like pretending like we don't know how it's going to turn out, even though we know when it's going to turn out well. We are captivated, as Americans especially, by the prospects of sports, where you don't know which team's going to hit the home run and win the prize. You don't, you don't know who's going to, to bring the, the, uh, the, the trophy back home. We love movies, where you're not sure how it's going to turn out. We love this conflict. We don't know how it's going to turn out. We hope that it will. That possibility that it might not is what captivates us, because we love this concept of maybe. Gambling is a huge issue in our culture. Because maybe if I put a little bit of money down, I won't have to work and I'll get a whole lot back. Even romance in the American mindset is so often about maybe. Maybe this person will satisfy me. Maybe this person will be all that I hoped and dreamed instead of thinking about true love as promise and commitment to one another. We need to start to change that concept. When we come to know Jesus Christ, when we become believers, it's not because He's a God of maybe. God's will will absolutely and certainly be done. When he declares a thing, there is no question about it. It will happen. And there is a true peace that comes when you settle into the reality that what God declares truly will come to pass. The maybe goes away. Now, it's not as exhilarating in some ways because the, the risk is taken out of it. We don't get to feel lucky if it works out because there's no such thing as luck. If you are God's, he will carry you to the end. There is the will of God and it will be done. So we must appreciate that in new ways. We must learn to value peace and contentment and assurity more than we value the prospect of advancement and something greater than we already have. Though Jesus is not physically with us right now, the scriptures tell us he is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, that he is preparing a place for us. Though he is not physically with us right now, the scripture is crystal clear that he will sustain his church until he returns to bring his church to himself to the place that he has prepared for us. Those who trust in Jesus will be judged guiltless in the final day because their sins have already been paid in full by the blood and suffering of Jesus Christ. And that that sinful record has been replaced with the imputed righteousness of Jesus, God's son. Whatever was good and holy in him he has accounted that to us so that we can stand before the Lord God and appear as holy and good and true. 
What will it feel like, friends, to stand before the Lord God in that final day? What will it feel like to be guiltless before him? Have you thought of that? Won't you want to praise him for the fact that the guiltless status that you have standing before the Lord God is nothing that you brought to the table yourself, but is all because of the suffering of the perfect lamb, Jesus Christ, that he suffered on our behalf so that at the end of it all, God can stand us before him and say, why should I let you into my heaven? And we can point to our mediator, Jesus, and Jesus will have paid our record in full and set us free from the weight of sin so that we can enjoy eternity with God the Father. The introduction to this letter comes to a conclusion in verse 9 where Paul says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it is a faithful testimony. God is faithful. He has paid the price to bring his elect into proper fellowship with him. And that fellowship means that we don't just have a new status. It means that we are now near to the Lord God. And that's part of the victory that is going to be won through the letter of 1 Corinthians is that Paul's going to show these Corinthians how their divisive attitudes and their secular way of thinking is keeping them from this beautiful fellowship that they have in Jesus Christ. That they can be near to God now because they have been washed clean, but they are not enjoying that like they should because they're so easily led astray by the things of this world. God has saved us to have fellowship with him. So Paul shows thankfulness for this church in Corinth. But in reality, it is an expression of his thankfulness to God himself and all that he has done. As we seek to learn from the way that Paul showed gratitude towards the Corinthians, let us examine our own approaches to gratitude. How do we show thanksgiving to one another? We've just spent 35 minutes talking about how Paul showed gratitude to the church in Corinth, but how do we show thanksgiving to one another? And do we do it in a godly way? One of the major themes of 1 Corinthians is this. Don't let the secular culture that you live in define who you are. If you are called by the name of Christ, he has redefined you. Don't let the pressure of what is going on around you define who you are. Being daily exposed to a lost culture, we must make a conscious effort to live differently than what we see around us. And that is not easy. As a result of our secular saturation, what are some of the common mistakes that we might make when we show thankfulness to one another? Even in the way that we thank God for one another, we might be doing that in a way that is influenced by our culture. Too often, we, we tend to glamorize a person. We ignore their faults. We praise them as if nothing was wrong with them. We're completely positive about them, but in order to do that, we're, we're just shoving everything else uh, in, the, in the closet. We're pretending like they're, they're perfect and pure. When in reality, every human being is a mixture of, of brokenness and, and healthiness. When we heap praise on a person without mention of the fact that they are, there are others that contributed to their well-being and to their success, then we're not thanking them the way that we should. We're pretending as though the end product was all in their power, when in reality there were many people that contributed, many things that deserve praise that got them to where they are. Even without trying, our expressions of gratitude might build in a person an inflated feeling of self-worth and thereby independence from God. So in honesty, our culture is, is constantly overemphasizing this idea of self-esteem. 
It is, in, in many regards, the be-all, end-all measure of one's spiritual health in the world today. But apart from a true vision of how God alone gives life and vitality, self-esteem is actually a serious roadblock to faith. The good news isn't good. The gospel that we preach is not good news unless you have received the bad news first. And the bad news is this. Though we are made in the image of God, we have all sinned against him and broken his law. And that there is no earthly solution to that. There is no ritual. There is no right. There is no gift we can give that will undo the brokenness in us. We are incapable of saving ourselves. And so I hope you can identify here how pride and self-centeredness refuses to accept a reality like that. Pride does not want to believe that there is nothing we can do to make our way to the Lord. We want to believe that there is a stairway that can be built to heaven step by step. And as long as we focus and are self-disciplined, we can make it there. But God says again and again in his scripture that that's not the reality of it. And so how can we show thanksgiving to one another in a way that does not spur us on to greater sin? How can we express gratitude in a biblical and God-honoring way? Let me give you four ways that we can focus on this. First of all, show thanksgiving with honesty to one another. When you are thankful to someone, be honest in the way that you express your gratitude. And that means that we are not to exaggerate when we praise someone, when we, when we thank God for them. Don't blow out of proportion the good things that God has done in them. That really only takes away from the encouragement. If someone is saying something about you that is very nice, very complimentary, but fictional or overblown, then you can't really benefit from that praise because you know in your heart of hearts that it's not true. So don't think you're doing someone a favor by, by building them up with, with empty words that are not really true. If you care about the truth, when someone exaggerates in praising you, it puts you in the awkward position of having to correct them so that others don't get the wrong idea about who you are and what you're all about. So don't put other people in that position. Let your expressions of thanksgiving be honest expressions. And you've probably heard the phrase before, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. And there are times when we do need to keep the trap shut, aren't there? However, there is always something to be thankful for about someone. Something to be honestly thankful for. Even if it is simply that they were made in the image of God. Every human being was made in God's image. It is why we, we honor and respect all forms of life. It is why culture or economic background or race does not determine whether or not somebody is valuable in our eyes or not. People are valuable because they are made in the image of God. So there is always something that you can praise God for in somebody, no matter how wretched they may be. No matter how much they turn away from the Lord God, there is always the possibility that God might redeem that person in grace and make them your brother or sister. So think about that. There is always an honest way to praise someone. But let us not be pulled into the current of the world, which is so quick to just spew out praises that may or may not actually be true. Secondly, let's determine to show thanksgiving without stoking the embers of pride in one another. Having grown up in American culture, we tend to have a very secular understanding of pride. 
and its impact on our hearts. Our culture teaches us that pride is universally good and that we should all have pride and that we need to strive to make others proud of us. But the Bible actually describes pride very differently, doesn't it? God's word tells us plainly that pride directed towards ourselves produces sin. Let me just share a number of verses real quick with you that that helps you to see that this is not just a personal opinion. This is what God has proclaimed to us. James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That very scripture is repeated almost verbatim in 1 Peter 5, 5, and it is a quotation of the Psalms. Proverbs 11, 2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. If God is not a liar, and that is true, then why are we so apt to try to make people proud of themselves all the time? Why do we want to cultivate in the hearts of others this idea that I can do everything on my own and I don't need help from anyone? It's destructive. Proverbs 21.4, Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. Philippians 2.3 in the New Testament, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That is incompatible with the pride that is being propagated in our culture today, isn't it? And by the way, this was the attitude that was in Jesus that made him willing to come down and take on a human body and to be humbled to live with us and to fulfill the law on our behalf. 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We cannot help but see the fingerprints of pride all over the first crime even in the garden. When the serpent is deceptive to Eve, he promises her, listen, if you eat of this fruit, don't you see, you will be as God is. The temptation there is that she might be something more than what God has made her to be. That God perhaps is not the prime object of our worship and affection. That perhaps man can become the prime object. Perhaps the whole of creation can revolve around man. Is this not rooted in pride and in a discontentment for the grand position that God has given to us when he made us to bear his image? What an honor it is to be made in the image of God. Why do we allow ourselves to desire more than that? Why do we want to be what we cannot be, to be God of our own lives? Why do we put so much emphasis on making sure we are proud if a proud heart is the root of so much sin? Paul actually expresses some pride to the Corinthians. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, that I die every day. 2 Corinthians 7, 4, I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. And this tells us that there is then a kind of pride that is good and godly pride. Paul has this pride in the Corinthians. It is a pride rooted in God and the work that God is doing in his people. We are described as God's workmanship, predestined to do the good works that he has laid out beforehand for us to do. 
So we can take pride in what God is doing in broken vessels like us, that he can do loving and true things, even through people like us who are so flawed and make so many mistakes. So consider the language that you use as you express your thankfulness to one another. So often we're prone to say things like, oh, you're the best, or what you just did was awesome, and, and I couldn't have done this without you. And we want to praise one another in ways that, that seem very positive on the outside. But think about how some of those words might encourage in someone a pride that has them disregard God and the work that God has done in their lives to make them possible, make it possible for them to do any good. Think differently about following sentences. You might say, I thank God for what he is doing in you. I'm so grateful to see the Lord at work in your life. You are a blessing to me. The fact that you have given me friendship, God has blessed me by bringing you into my life. I am not ashamed to call you my brother. I am not ashamed at all to be connected to you. These are ways that we can be, be proud of each other by still keeping the, the focus on the Lord God and the ways that he is working in the lives of fellow believers. Friends, we can actually do damage to our own children by constantly praising them and giving them the idea that they can do anything on their own, independent from God, and that they are head and shoulders above their peers. One type of praise there makes them think that they don't really need the Lord, that they can just run around independently without him because we build them up as these little autonomous free creatures and don't help them to see that they, they need to depend on God and that he is willing to provide in a loving way. And secondly, if we're constantly praising somebody as better than their peers, then all we're doing is cultivating this nature of competitiveness between one and another. And that undermines love. That keeps us from being a people that cares for one another sacrificially. So let us be careful about the ways that we are thankful towards one another, that, that we are not stoking pride and sinfulness in our brothers by the way we heap praise upon them. Secondly, be careful that your expression of thankfulness is not designed to do you more good than it is to them. In other words, flattery is a very crooked and manipulative technique. And often thanksgiving is not sincere but it is just a tool to make someone behave the way you want them to behave. I was watching a show with my kids the other day. I don't know if you ever heard of MasterChef Junior. Okay, little kids in this kitchen cooking stuff. And I think to myself, I could make a bowl of cereal if it came down to it. You know, if I was in the trenches, I think I could like, I could maybe make some toast. Like that's the limits of what I can do. And these kids are like whipping up creme brulees and they're making perfect risottos. And they're like nine. When I was nine, I couldn't like make a mud pie. You know, I was completely deficient. But in this show, there was a, a certain challenge where there were two teams of children and they were preparing a meal for these circus performers that had just put on a great show for them. And so each of the circus performers is going to get two different meals, and they were going to taste them both, and they were going to decide which one of the teams did a better job. And one of these little girls, nine-year-old little girl, takes the leadership role and starts telling all the kids plainly, tell them that their outfits look beautiful. Make sure you, you tell them they look nice, because if they think you liked what they did, they'll vote for us. From a nine-year-old, to other nine-year-olds and eight-year-olds and 10-year-olds, she's teaching them how to be flatterers. She's teaching them that, that thanksgiving is artificial, that you just use it to get what you want. See, sometimes pa parents teach their kids these things. We have responsibilities, don't we, to try to raise our children up in the Lord. But even if we do teach our kids right, the wicked heart within us will often pick up on things like this and we'll be drawn to what is wicked. We want to do the things that are wrong as long as it benefits us. 
So let's be determined, friends, that we are not a people of flattery. Remember 1 Thessalonians 2.5 where Paul says, we never came to you with words of flattery. In other words, he was determined not to speak anything to the church that was not true just to win their affection and their favor. And we should think the same ways. Lastly, we need to show thanksgiving in a way that Jesus receives the ultimate glory for our gratitude. Think about Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, where the Apostle Paul says to us, Be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Just focusing on verse 20 there, that we are called as his church to give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ. So be thankful, friends. And I've got, to, I've got to end with this. Thankfulness is such a powerful, powerful tool right now to show the light of Christ. I don't remember a time in my life when it was easier to not be thankful. And that's the honest truth. I could wake up in the morning and complain about things all day long because I'm so upset about some of the things that are happening in our world. We could grumble we could complain. We could whine that God has not blessed us the way we want to be blessed. We complain about the decisions that other people are making. We can complain about our inconveniences. But friends, if we can be thankful at a time like this, then we can show the light of the Lord to the people around us. There is always something to be happy about. We have Christ Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit. We have one another. We have every reason to rejoice in everything that our faithful God has provided for us. Would you bow with me as we conclude in a word of prayer? God, we thank you. We don't do it just because we have to and because that's the way you end a service, Lord. We're thanking you right now because we can see how you have given us all things that we need that pertain to life and godliness. We are lacking nothing. And so we praise you, Lord God, that there is a joy within us that is incorruptible, that is not determined by the circumstances that surround us, Lord God. We are grateful for the promise that you have not just saved your church, but you are preparing a place for her, and that one day you will return for your church. In the meantime, Lord God, I pray that we would have a great expectation for that return, and that we would live in such a way that we don't grow weary of doing good, that we do not grow weary of blessing your name with faithful obedience and worship, God, but that we would every day be excited about whatever opportunities you give us to praise you and to be thankful. Lord God, I pray that you would humble us and help us to, to digest some of these concepts, which are difficult because they are so contrary to the way the world thinks, Lord God. But nevertheless, we are not called to conform to the world. We're called to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so we pray that you would accomplish that even today through your word and the work of your Holy Spirit. Let us praise you with joy. We love you, and thank you for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.